0: Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. I don't know if you have this in your life or not, uh, but on occasion, uh, kids can get spastic. Not my kids, because they're perfect, but kids can get spastic. Am I right? Out of all the things that could be said today, that amen was lacking right there. Like that was the moment where you like, jump. kids can get a little crazy and every so often um, it's good. We, there's this process, right, where you kind of have to reorient them. I mean, sometimes physically you like pick them up Walk this way, drop them this way and make them look at something else, you know, or you pick them up and you throw them on your shoulder and you spin them around or something until their head is dizzy and they're not sure what's happening. Just to kind of get them out of whatever physical um, and mental spiral they may be in. Um, You kind of have that moment. And then um, you you find wherever it is um, in their lives at that moment, you try to find that reset button where you're like, hey, let's let's just read complete do over here. Let's stop. Okay. Now that we've gotten out of the death spiral uh, that we were in, uh, we, we fixed that. Let's just reset and move um, forward. And then you step into that kind of thing where you rehearse uh, a little bit. Okay. So this is what's going to happen now. This is how that's going to do it. You do as patiently as possible, as quietly as possible. You turn out to talk through your gritty teeth. You know what I mean? Anybody with me on this, you do that kind of thing. And while I have no intention whatsoever of picking any of you up and spinning you around until your you know, head pops off or whatever, I, I, it is important, I think, just to say um, here, here as we re-enter uh, the Gospel of John, it's good to kind of reorient and to reset and then to rehearse some of the things that have happened. So um, the the key idea in the gospel of John is that he, the apostle, he wrote uh, this gospel, he wrote three letters, and he wrote the book of Revelation there at the end of the New Testament. And he is writing this particular account of Jesus' life for a singular purpose. In John chapter 20, verse 31, this is what he says. I am writing these things down for everybody. And I want, listen, I want you to read it. Why? So that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by believing you would have life in his name. You would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, come from God um, to earth to accomplish God's will to bring salvation to the world through his death and through his resurrection. You would believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and that he, the, the Jesus Christ the, is the Son of God. He is the, the one who is powerfully um, declared to be victorious in the Lord of all things. He is the Lord. And that by believing, by putting our trust and confidence in Jesus, that we would have life in his name. And it's not just some version of life or some like uh, level of existence that is one up from where you are. It is a completely different kind of life. A life that is marked with the weight and the significance of eternity. Jesus wants us to live with that impressed upon our lives. And that would change us as a result. This is, this is why John writes. And so we start out in John chapter 1. He talks about how the Word became flesh. And then John the Baptist, a different John, but John the Baptist shows up on the scene and just points to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And people start coming around Jesus. They start collecting to him. He's, uh, he b- uh, finds disciples and begins to, um, teach them about what the kingdom is like in Genesis, in Genesis, sorry, John chapter two, wrong book in John chapter two, he turns water into wine at this party and at this wedding party. And so no longer do we have these rites and rituals of purification. Jesus takes all of that old stuff, old stuff and makes it into a party. You could have amen right there too. This, this is what he's about. In John chapter 3, he encounters a, a guy who was stuck in kind of that old system, who was counting on his pedigree and his prowess as a rule keeper. To, to, uh, his name was Nicodemus, um, to, to make him right with God. And Jesus says, man, there has to be something come on your life, like something from the outside come into your life and enter into your life. So, and it has to be so foreign to you, but yet so powerful work on you that there's nothing else that can be said except you've been born again. It is, there's no other phrase for it. Don't count on your pedigree. You were born into a particular family. Don't count on your religious prowess that you would be the kind of person who could keep the rules. Don't count on those things. There has to be something else entirely. Um, in John chapter 4, he encounters a woman who is the exact opposite of Nicodemus. Those two stories are stuck back, to back on purpose. Because some of us grew up in religious settings. Some of us grew up not in religious settings. And the choices that we made or were made for us put us in some really tough positions. And this is that lady. And he encounters her. as she's drawing water at a well. And he says, man, i got living water for you. She's like, if I had living water, I'd never have to come back here. That's a win. I would like some of that. And Jesus says he's doing is just pressing um, it down into past kind of surface level stuff, superficial stuff down into her heart. And he says, listen, I, I want to give it to you. I really do. To-, to meet the deepest needs of your heart. And she's like, look, even eat- if showed up, even if I showed up at the temple as a Samaritan, as someone who was not a Jew I couldn't go in and be made right with God and Jesus is like, hey I got news for you you don't have to go to a place to be made right with God an hour is coming and folks it is now here when living water gets poured out upon people and they don't worship at a particular place, they worship a person she's like Phew. Let me in on that. Let me in on that. In John chapter 5, he heals a man who had been uh, uh, stuck there for years upon years upon years. And he says to him, hey, look, get up, walk, and take your mat with you, and don't ever come back to this kind of life. Like, leave. This is not the place for you any longer. There's a new kind of freedom. In John chapter 6, he feeds the multitude has 12 baskets of food left over. And then walks on the water to get across the sea later that night. Awesome. Incredible. So, where we are is in that right there. We're going to pick back up in the middle of John chapter 6. And in doing so, what we want to reiterate is that John writes, so that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, we would have, and he is the son of God. And by believing, we would have life um, in his name. So, Uh, Three statements today. I want to just uh, take them in order of the text here. Let's start in John chapter 6 verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that uh, remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered that boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Don't get lost in some of that, but we're we're in the middle of a story here. Jesus has fed um, this multitude of people and then it became night. He sent his disciples away. He went up on the mountain to pray. And uh, while it was still night, he went walking across uh, the, the big lake called the Sea of Galilee. He went walking across while they were rowing and they had that encounter. But the crowds who were left were like, wait a minute, what happened? There was only one boat. Jesus isn't here. The, uh, disciples aren't here. We're not sure what happened. What happened? I don't know. Um, verse uh, 23 here. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to the Capernaum seeking Jesus. So I just want to give you a uh, first big statement here uh, at, the, at the top end here. Uh, that, that God works in ways that I do not understand. Is that fair? There are things that happen and ways that God is at work that I do not understand. Here's one of them right here. Um, Just a, a few verses before, when he had sent his disciples away, he was going up on the mountain to pray. He sent his disciples away, and when he did so, he sent them down into the sea, he sent them into the dark, and he sent them into the storm. He knew that the storm was coming. There are times when I would much rather God just leave me alone than do that to me. But there are times when the only thing that he will um, say to me or show me is in one of those environments, or all three. Some of you are at the place where you are uh, uh, in the dark, or in a storm, or down in the sea, the place of chaos and disorder. This is where Jesus sent his disciples. But here's what I don't want you to forget, because if you are in the midst of any of those, or some combination of those, or all three of those, don't forget this. But yes, he sent his disciples into the sea, and into the dark, and into the storm, but he met them there. He met them there, miraculously so. And some of you are in that spot, and I just want you to know, you're not alone, and Jesus will meet you there. David wrote it this way in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear. Why? Because the valley's not scary? No, that's not it. Because you are with me. That's what he said. We don't fear because God is with us. The, the question is do we want comfort or relief or do we want Him? God sends them, Jesus sends them in this way into some difficult places. And they may pray for relief. But really, what he wants to give them is himself. He wants to show them some stuff. That's why he comes walking on the water, to meet them. Do we want relief? Or do we want him? Uh, John, uh, this same author, uh, writes in his uh, first letter, in 1 John chapter 2, there's this little poem. And he says, hey, I'm writing to you little children uh, because your sins are forgiven. That's pretty awesome. Uh, I am writing to you young men and young women uh, because... Um, uh, you believe the word of God and you are starting to learn to overcome the evil one. So you get the progression here. There's these little kids who are like, boy, my sins are forgiven. This is a good day. And then there's growth that brings them into um, a, a, a greater form of maturity where they are believing and living in the word of God and they are overcoming the evil one. And then he says, and I'm writing to you fathers, the most mature, the spiritual parents, if you will, because you know God. And that's all he says about them. I'm writing to you because fathers, because you know God. The most mature of those who are like, yeah, I mean relief would be nice, but I'll take you over relief a hundred times out of a hundred. Yes, ease and comfort, that would be better. Like in this moment, sure, yeah, absolutely it would. I'd rather not go through the valley, but I'd rather have you. I'd rather have you than miss the valley. He sent his disciples into the sea, into the dark, in his sword. The question is, do we want him? Secondly, he he left one place to work in another place. So he got on, uh, he sent his disciples away, but then he himself left the place where he had done the miracles, left the place where he had done some incredible teaching in John chapter 5 about who he was, uh, left the place where all of this incredible stuff had gone. He left and went to a different place. Why is that important? Well, Because this is, on on occasion, this happens. Um, It it is a danger um, to make an idol out of the way that God is working or the place in which he is working. And sometimes, sometimes, that is where our hearts go. God, we've seen you act like this. We're expecting you to act like this again. God, we've met you in this place. We're expecting you to meet us again. Sometimes God changes things so that our hearts, um, it is clear to our hearts that it's not the place and it's not that specific method, it's God himself. He left one place to work another. Uh, Paul encountered this in Acts chapter 16. I think this is in the Bible app here. point pointed out to you. In verse uh, 6, <clears throat> Acts 16, verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. So what's the deal? Holy Spirit doesn't like the people in Turkey? And he's just like, no, nah, man, not them. Mm-mm. Verse seven, when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them. What is wrong with Bithynia? I mean, what is happening? So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, which is Northern Greece, was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had uh, called us to preach the gospel to them. He, he said no to Asia Minor. Um, he said no to Bithynia so that he could direct them and say yes to Macedonia and it would get to even larger population. The gospel would get to even larger population centers sooner as a result. He left one place to work in another. D- don't forget though. Don't miss this. D- just like um, when you're when you're in the difficulties, you got to remember that God is with you. Um, when you see God... no no longer working in this particular place and moving over to this particular place to do work. Just remember that he's working. And if he's working, then the question for you and for me is this. Am I committed to join him? Well, God, I really liked it when you did this other thing. Uh, Okay, good. But now, for this moment, this is not what's best. I'm over here. Are you committed to joining him? Whatever that looks like. God moves in ways that I do not understand. Secondly, different people seek him for different motives. So at the end of verse 24, um, they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, why did you come here? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Two things I just want to highlight here. Um, and this may be true of people in the room. It may be true of people watching online. Um it, there might be in you different motives for being here. Somebody drug you here. Um, you thought maybe, gosh, you know, our kids probably need to grow up at least understanding what church looks like. And maybe you came here for your kids' sake. Maybe you came here for any number of reasons. Maybe you're just out of desperation. are like, I don't know what I need to do, but I got to do something. Different people seek him for different reasons. I'm just glad that you're here. There's two kind of um, ways, typically, that I encounter, and they're highlighted here a little bit in the text. Some people came seeking Jesus. They're like, hey, Jesus, how did you get from over here to over here? Like, what? What is that? Uh, Some people seek him because he's curious. Excuse me, because they are curious about him. And it goes something like this. Um, It is provoked by a kind of situation. Oh, Jesus, there was just one boat. He sent that boat away. He went up on the mountain. And then all of a sudden, he's in a different place. How did that happen? Maybe that situation has provoked it. And maybe it's not that particularly for you. Or maybe it's a little bit darker. Or maybe it's a lot lighter. And you're like, boy, this is just interesting to me. Curiosity, whatever it may be. But a situation provoked that. Or, or, or. A kind of life provokes that. And this is true in the book of Acts in the early church, as, as that story unfolds, um, moment after moment, story after story, people would walk up to Peter or John or James or these other people and be like, "Ah, uh, I don't. What's your deal, man? I don't get you. I think I want what you want, I think, but I don't understand what it is that you have that I, it's creating in me this kind of thing. Curiosity. There was an article that came out." Uh, in the Atlantic. Uh, I'm not sure if it was this week or this past week. Tyler and I were doing some uh, dialoguing about it. And uh, there was a book that came out, I don't know, in the past month or so, talking about the great de Church Post-pandemic life, uh, not everybody has re-engaged uh, with church and the rhythms of that as, as, um, as they were before um, pandemic. And they were talking about reasons. There was a kind of a, uh, the data showed there was a, uh, a small little percentage, uh, not to be dismissive, but it was a smaller percentage of the larger um, survey. A small percentage where uh, they just got fed up because um, the, the things that were done um, in Jesus' name or the things that weren't done and should have been done in Jesus' name were such that it tipped them over. That's part of it. The vast majority of it was people, it just got out of rhythm. For them, it just changed. It just changed. And the, the, the interesting thing about it is that big set right there. Not not these folks who've encountered significant and genuine hurt. But this being said over here, they were actually uh, very much inclined to, when they bumped up against somebody who was a follower of Jesus and still was engaged in church, they were still very much inclined and favorable um, to responding to an invitation to church. So the great de-churching happens in part because people aren't being invited to church. Can we say that one more time? Like the great dechurching is in part, maybe even in majority of that part, is because people don't invite people to church. There was a significant percentage, 70%, depending upon the uh, data where you look, 70 to 80% would respond uh, favorably to a personal invitation by people. So we, just as a church family, we put it this way, just so that you know, this little uh, uh, pyramid is really kind of our strategy that we have a culture of invitation, that you and I participate in this culture of invitation. We are a part of this. Everybody is a part of That's Baseline expectation for everybody. We frame it this way, the singular question, hey, do you go to church anywhere regularly? And it's always the regularly part that gets them, but regularly. That, that's an important question. And so they say, oh, well, I, 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 listen, man, we'd love for you to come crack the joke that you want to crack. Hey, the music's really great, preaching, whatever. I just like, but you invite them to church and what you will find based on the data is that people are favorable towards that but it's a personal invitation that opens the door to tell our story because some of you have stories about the goodness of God you have seen the goodness of God all over your life you have seen the promises in fulfillment and then that ultimately leads to opening the door to sharing the gospel that we are a people who can stand and say, I've got news. It's not an opinion piece, it's news. And the news is, Jesus has come, he has died to forgive sin, and he has risen to give life. And we invite people to put their trust in him. This is what it looks like for us. Curiosity. The the second reason people uh, seek him as it's revealed here in the text, is that they have a desire or they have a felt need. So Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He had just fed the multitude, and uh, he's saying to them, Hey, look, y'all came over here because you're hungry. And that that felt need or that desire would do that. Um, Here's the thing. Even misplaced desires, though, point to realities, like big, important realities. The diagnosis that Jesus gives here, um, where he says, hey, you're not coming after me uh, because you you ate your fill of the loaves. That diagnosis is not condemnation. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to engage them uh, on the level uh, that he wants to engage them. It's an invitation to relate to him on his terms. They asked the question, when did you get here? He answered the question that they should have been asking, why am I here? Even misplaced desires point to important realities. So you get people who are curious. You get people who are... uh, uh Questioning, You get people who express these kind of desires. Those are pointers to important realities. I'll just give you a couple here right out of the text. In verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said to one another, this is indeed the prophet, the prophet who is coming to the world. This is indeed the prophet who's coming to the world. They knew that there was a prophet. They recognized a prophet, but he's not going to perform signs um, just for them or on their terms. In verse 15, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted a king. They thought they could make Jesus the king. They were under Roman rule, under oppression there. They needed a whole different system of government. They needed to kick everybody out. They needed to just, so Jesus, you be our king. That'd be great. They had that desire, but he wasn't going to be king on their terms and he wasn't going to rule, or reign according to their rules. And in verse 26 five, sorry, when they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They ask a rabbi, but he doesn't answer their question. He answers the question they should have been asking. Even misplaced desires, they point to important realities. I say that because sometimes people that we are engaged with, people that we are relating to, they express things in their lives. They they let things come out of their heart, and it shows up, and we're like, that's terrible. What kind of... But what they're doing is showing that there is a desire in them for something. And even misplaced desires point to important realities. As followers of Jesus, we take those misplaced desires and we say, Hey, what you really want in that moment is Him. C.S. Lewis has a very great quote in... um, In mere Christianity, I'm going to put it on the screen here. It's very long. So everybody, just note, it's three slides long, okay? All right. It'll be in the notes. You want to go look at it later. It's three slides long, but I I do want to get it here and read it. The Christian said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. If we have desires, there's a satisfying thing. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, there is such a thing as sex. If I find find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I am made for another world. If there's a desire, the Christian worldview says... God intends for that to be met. And if I'm looking around and saying, hey, none of this is actually working, then maybe there's something else. I'll just give you a quick, quick picture of this before we move to the second slide. In Genesis chapter 2, all of the animals come parading in front of Adam. Giraffe, donkey, hippopotamus, platypus. That was a weird one, God. the The parade of animals is to prove what? None of these are made for him. They are not his partner. They're not. The desires, the desires, if they parade, if the things in front of us don't satisfy, then maybe, just maybe, we're made for something else. Second slide. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy this desire, it does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Which, which is kind of um, culture's response right now. Oh, well, this is just, uh, this is a joke. And I'll just find my own way, create my own identity, decide about myself what I'm going to be. Probably earthly pleasures actually were never meant to satisfy it but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings and on the other, never to mistake them for something else for which they are only a copy, an echo or um, a mirage. So I don't reject them and I don't deify them. I don't say they're nothing and I don't say that they're God. Last slide. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country, and don't miss this, and to help others do the same. And to help others do the same. People show up in our lives, and their desires for something are misplaced or misguided or misnamed. And so we say to them, oh, I, I, I know you have that desire. It's pointing to something. It's pointing to something significant. It's pointing to something important. It's pointing to something real. Even, even people's desires are felt needs. Jesus will meet them in that moment. And help them understand who he is. Okay, last thing. God invites us, because he is who he is, God invites us to deeper lives. He, he doesn't just let us dwell on the surface. He doesn't just let us live in superficial land. He invites us to deeper. So, verse um, 26, Jesus answered. Again, their question was, Hey, wh- when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Um, the, Jesus invites us to deeper lives. We may have a question, but he wants to answer the questions that we should be asking. He, here's one of the things that he will say and point us to consistently. The kingdom, the, the kingdom that he is bringing, it is spiritual. Spiritual. At the end of the gospel, he tells, uh, he tells Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world, yo. Listen, if it was, I'd have soldiers at the gate. It'd be an army of angels getting ready to just march in here and just level the place, starting with you. As it is, my kingdom's not of this world. It's important to remember that. The kingdom is spiritual. It is not of this world. It is not material. It is not marked out by boundaries. It is not political. It is not economic. But, 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 when the kingdom comes in our lives, when the reality of the rule of God over our lives takes uh, takes up residence in us and begins to express itself, does it make a difference in the world in which we live? What's the answer to that? Absolutely. The impact is real. The impact is real. The effect is real. It's real on us, and it's real in the world in which we live. The kingdom is spiritual. But don't don't make the mistake of thinking that the material is all that there is. Don't work for the food that perishes. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. It's verse 27. Stay right there in verse 27. Which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. He uses two different images there. The Son of Man is the anointed one who rises to the right hand of the Father. This is imagery from Daniel chapter 7. He rises to the right hand of God Almighty, the Ancient of Days. And he is the one chosen uh, to bring redemption and, uh, to the earth through his rule and through his reign. And so uh, when he says that, um, the, the, when he says son of man, that's what he's talking about. And then he says, for on him, God the Father has set his seal. That there there is a, a special thing that God is doing and doing uniquely through Jesus. He's not doing it through others. He has spoken through prophets. But Jesus, his son, is speaking his word. He has uh, written down the law, but Jesus has fulfilled the law and pointed us to something greater. The deeper lives that he has called us to re- is a reminder that the Messiah is gracious and we relate to him based on not not on the things that we can do we relate to him based on the things that he has done he is gracious don't miss this in in, uh, 20 at the end of verse 27 uh, which the son of man will give 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 to you this bread that endures to eternal life is the son of man who gives it this life that he gives is eternal life. It is the life that is marked by the weight of eternity. It is, it is chock full of the significance of eternity. It is a relationship with God where that eternity comes to bear in my life and in this present moment. And it's given to us. It's given to us. What what kind of gift is it? Well, hey, you accomplished this particular task and so your reward, your gift, is this. Ta-da! Yeah, no? No, that's not it. Hey, uh, you, you, you spun the wheel and it came out exactly one dollar. Your gift, your special gift is... That's not that's not how he gives it to us. Hey, today's your birthday. I'm going to give you your gift. It's, it, no. No. That's not it at all. It is completely separate from what you have accomplished, what you, uh, uh, put your, the environment in which you put yourself in, the moment in which you came. To, it is completely different and separate from all of those things. What are we talking about here? We're talking about something so shocking and so surprising that you just think to yourself, is this real? Like, is this actually happening? This is grace. And that Messiah is gracious like that. Last thing, verse 28. Then he said to him, excuse me, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works, works of God? Everybody see works? That's plural. What is the question? Give me the boxes that we need to check. Give me the things that we need to accomplish. Where's my to-do list? I will get on it here. If you can set up a task list for me, I'll put it in my outlook. I'll make sure that that happens, okay? This is what we're talking about here. What are the works that we must be doing to work the works of God? What, what, what is that? Jesus again answered the question they needed to be asking instead of the question they asked. He answered them. This is the work. Is that singular or plural, we all? It's singular. The work. This is the work of God. You're looking for a whole list. This is the work. This is the work of God that you believe in Him who He has sent. The work is belief. The thing that God wants for you in this moment is belief. It's not about our capacity to do. That is not the question, and it's not the best question. What is the best question is, what has Jesus done? And can I put my trust and confidence in a person who would do that for me? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. He invites us to a deeper kind of living, a life that is marked by eternity. That work is belief. And when we put our trust in him, he forgives our sin. He gives us this kind of life that is eternal. And when we believe the gospel, we have news that is right out there in front of us. News that we can believe. It is not a system. It is not a a, a religious organization. The gospel is news for us to believe. When we trust him, when we believe, the work of God comes to us. And it begins a work of transformation. For some, we need to remind ourselves that it's the material stuff that is around us. It's blessings, for sure, but not ultimate. The kingdom is spiritual. For some, we need to remind ourselves that, hey, this isn't something that we earn. Jesus is gracious, beyond gracious to us. For some, it's, there's no boxes, no list. The work of God for you and for me Believe To believe. And by believing, we would have life in his name. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, I ask that uh, wherever that is in somebody's life right now, however that lands on someone, that it would be um, clear in this moment how they are to respond. Maybe it's to get off the treadmill of religion. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. Maybe it's to think differently about the people they will encounter today. Whatever that point of application is, Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would help people make that application just as you've spoken to your people, you you would like help them now know what to do. More important than anything that I certainly have said is what you have said to each individual and, and how they respond to it. So God, would you, as you've spoken, would you help now? Um. You, you do things and you work in ways that are incredible, beyond our comprehension. Sometimes beyond what we would desire, but nonetheless, beyond. So be at work now, Holy Spirit. Transform us. Don't, don't let up until it's done. This is what I ask over our people in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.